Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, with Election Day in the rearview mirror, we examine some of the results around issues we've been following. And with global leaders meeting this week under the premise of addressing the global climate crisis, we speak with a local poet who is using literature as a way of grappling with big ideas in the climate space. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Colorado's 2021 general election is over, and we're taking a quick look at some of the results around issues that we've been following here on the show. To do that, we are joined by KUNC State Capitol reporter Scott Franz. Hi, Scott. Hi, Erin. We're also joined by Kevin Bomber, executive director of the Colorado Municipal League. Hello. How you doing, Erin? Great to be here. Great to have you. And we're joined by Erica Meltzer, Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. Erica, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Let's start at the statewide level because there were three statewide measures on the ballot. Proposition 119 would have raised marijuana taxes to fund some education programs. Proposition 120 would have cut property taxes by around a billion dollars. And Amendment 78 would have given the state legislature more authority over some state spending. Scott Franz, voters rejected all three of the statewide measures on the ballot. What does that say to you about asking, you know, voters to approve higher taxes on cannabis? It's interesting because in previous elections, voters have shown a willingness to approve what what many consider to be sin taxes, taxing things like tobacco, to pay for education programs, vaping products. You know, so I'm wondering now if, you know, we saw all around the state different measures, you know, aiming to add taxes on marijuana um, in Denver, for example, trying to raise funds for a pandemic preparedness fund. I'm wondering if voters just looked at their ballots and you know, saw so many of these measures trying to add it if, if there's a sort of fatigue for doing it. You know, I also talked to, to Curtis Hubbard last night. He's a spokesman for the um, Prop 119 campaign. And he said, you know, that he doesn't think there were enough parents and, and younger voters coming out to approve something like this, but we'll have to kind of dig through the turnout numbers in the coming days to, to kind of dig into that. Well, Erica, let me ask you, because this marijuana tax would have paid for some tutoring programs. Uh, Prop 119 had the support of Governor Polis as well as a wide range of community groups. As I understand it, some of the education groups on Colorado weren't exactly on the same page with this one. Is that fair to say? Uh, Yes, that's fair to say. The Colorado Education Association, which is the umbrella teacher or teachers union organization, originally was a partner on this, but then pulled their support in the summer, which I think was potentially damaging to the measure. And then the Colorado Association of School Boards and the Colorado Association of School Executives um, were opposed to this measure. And there was a couple of reasons. This funding would have gone to out-of-school learning opportunities, tutoring, art and music lessons, second language instruction, And a lot of people said Colorado doesn't fund its schools well enough. Like, why are we setting up a new revenue stream to create a new bureaucracy outside the Department of Education? 
to fund these out-of-school opportunities. Um, and some opponents also described it as, as opening the door to vouchers. It did explicitly say you couldn't use these to pay for school tuition, but that may have hurt it as well. Well, Kevin, let me bring you on in on this subject. When we talked last month about marijuana questions, I remember you saying something like, everyone wants to talk about marijuana, but maybe it's not news anymore because it's been so long since it was legalized at the recreational level. Uh, but there were some surprising outcomes related to marijuana. Uh, Denver voters rejected an ordinance to raise uh, marijuana taxes in the city to create a pandemic research fund. Golden voted to allow the sale of recreational marijuana in their city by a slim margin. Uh, Lamar also approved medical and retail stores, but Wellington, Brighton, Mead, and Ray also all rejected questions to allow marijuana sales. What did these local results, coupled with the failure of Proposition 119, tell you about how voters are feeling about marijuana? I mean, I think it's another testament to all politics is local. I don't know that any of the local questions have that much of a connection to the statewide question other than it's, you know, another marijuana question on the ballot. But, you know, don't don't forget Westminster, who the vote was to approve retail marijuana, but it relied upon a tax to be approved too, and that failed. So not going to happen in Westminster either. I think it's just not to sound dismissive, maybe like I did the first time, but there really is a, a drumbeat every year of municipalities looking at whether or not and asking their voters voters whether or not to opt in or not, um, which started after 2013. And I think we're going to keep seeing these questions on the ballot going forward. It was interesting to see taxes fail more this time than than in times past, because you know, sort of the inside joke was a lot of the tax increases never passed unless it was a marijuana tax increase. Well, let's talk then about uh, Proposition 120, uh, which would have lowered some property taxes. Scott, what are some of the factors in the fact that this failed? Um, And with Prop 120 gone, what does the bill related that Poll assigned do now? Yeah, I'll start with the the question about, you know, why this why this failed. Um, Proponents of this were very surprised um, and they point to just how complicated it was. I remember when I first started reporting on this, you know, I I talked to a financial analyst and I mean, it took probably an hour just to go through the complexity. You know, there was also the challenge of what voters saw on their ballots, um, you know, and the outline of who would be getting uh, a tax reduction, you know, wasn't in sync with current state law. So, Michael Fields, he's the conservative activist who helped put this on the ballot. He told me last night that he just thought there were too many people, you know, who questioned whether they really would get a tax break. The question of of what does happen next, Senate Bill 293 was by the legislature. It will temporarily reduce property tax assessment rates um, through tax year 2023. Uh, But then it's back up to state lawmakers to decide whether to extend those. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with KUNC State Capitol reporter Scott Franz and Kevin Bomber of the Colorado Municipal League, as well as Erica Meltzer, Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. Kevin, I want to turn back to you to talk about housing. What do the results from the election uh, and the results of other housing-related questions say about where voters are with housing? They certainly showed that uh, voters were engaged on the issues in in those municipalities that had questions, and there were a lot of them. Most of them passed. Um, There were a handful 
of uh, initiatives, uh, referenda, and a few referred measures from city councils that that failed. But and I think if you look at the overall, it's a recognition of uh, some of the serious housing impacts being felt in you know a lot of mountain towns, but not exclusively mountain towns, and uh, and and voters being willing to uh, increase taxes, be it through accommodations tax, sales tax. Um, excise tax on short-term rentals to to try to get a handle on some of it. Well, I want to turn back to you, Scott. In one of the three statewide questions, Amendment 78, this needed to pass with 55% of the vote. That, of course, didn't happen. I'm wondering if the results on Amendment 78 can be seen as a referendum on Governor Polis and the way that he has handled um, pandemic spending. I definitely think so. Um, you know, Amendment 78 was bigger than just Governor Polis. I mean, it would have taken power away from the attorney general. It would have taken power away from the state board that oversees transportation funding. Um, but conservatives who, who pushed this measure, their prime example of why they wanted it was Governor Polis spending more than a billion dollars of coronavirus relief money without legislative input. You know, on the other hand, I talked to supporters of this ballot measure last night, and they think, you know, the pandemic and and recent wildfires could have actually convinced voters that they didn't want to give more power to state lawmakers over emergency funding because these things have happened so quickly and are so impactful um, that money needs to be spent very quickly. And sometimes uh, getting the legislature involved does slow things down. There's public hearings. You know, opponents of Amendment 78 said there would be partisan bickering and that would impact, you know, responses to these kind of emergencies. But at the end of the day, I do think Governor Polis can be happy with these results. You know, public voter surveys have shown they're largely supportive of his pandemic response and, uh, you know, a rejection of a measure that that would have taken away some of his emergency powers um, is definitely a victory for him. One other interesting point I noticed in this election, there was virtually no spending by groups opposed to any of the statewide measures, yet they all still failed. What does that say right now, Erica? I wondered if voters were just in a no mood. I think we could analyze each of these and and try and figure out what it said, but we also have a relatively low turnout election um, in an off year. And sometimes I wonder if voters are just cranky and when they're cranky, they vote no. And Kevin, let me ask you that because, you know, sometimes there is a lower turnout during these off-year elections, but do, do are voters fired up about issues affecting their own towns and cities? I mean, if they were 100% cranky, you wouldn't have seen the past passage rate of a lot of the sales tax questions, lodging taxes, uh, occupational taxes, and extension of existing sales taxes and debt authority. And a lot of municipalities around the state, uh, you know, we at the municipal league often look at it as uh, we in in our success with Tabor questions at the local levels over the years since '93 bears this out. Is local governments have a, a lot better experience because they can make a very specific case of what they are asking for and how it's going to be used. And while new sales tax questions were kind of a mixed bag this year, about half of them passed and and half of them failed. Um, those extensions, uh, uh, debt authority, and expanding the use of existing sales taxes uh, overwhelmingly passed. 
I think Kevin makes a good point, and there's a parallel with school district elections where statewide taxes for education have fared very poorly, but a lot of school districts are successful at getting mill levy overrides and, and bond measures passed by their local voters, again, because there's that um, people can see the need more and they feel like there's more accountability with local government. Um, the tally we have, some of these are still close and may change, but the tally we have right now, we do see slightly more uh, financial measures by local school districts passing than failing. So that's another thing that we're going to be watching over the next couple of days. That's Erica Meltzer, Bureau Chief of Chalkbeat, Colorado, Kevin Balmer, Executive Director of the Colorado Municipal League, and KUNC State Capitol reporter Scott Franz. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. The COVID-19 vaccine will soon be available to kids aged 5 through 11, and you may have questions. What do you want to know about this step in the vaccination process? KUNC is collaborating with America Amplified to answer your questions about the vaccine. Submit your questions at KUNC.org, and we'll send back your answers. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Earlier this week, global leaders gathered in Glasgow, Scotland, for the United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as the COP26 conference. The U.S. is one of 200 participating countries committing to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to mitigate global warming and stave off the worst effects of climate change. At the same time, many residents of Boulder have been reading a collection of writings about the climate crisis for One Book, One Boulder, a program that invites the entire city to read and discuss the same book. This year's book is called All We Can Save. It's an anthology of writings at the intersection of the climate movement and feminist thought. Before that event wraps up Thursday evening, we're speaking with one of the contributors to All We Can Save, Camille Dungy. She's a poet and writer and a university distinguished professor at Colorado State University. She's here with us to talk about how the power of literature intersects with climate action. Camille, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me. First of all, for those of us who haven't had a chance to read it yet, what is All We Can Save? All We Can Save is an anthology of women-identified writers who are speaking through poetry, essays, even um, graphic images about ways to, to think clearly about how to move ourselves um, towards positive action in the face of the climate crisis. You're a poet, of course, so naturally your contribution to the book is a poem. Talk about what poetry has to do with climate action. I think poetry has to do with all action. In poetry, we're able to touch into alternative ways of being, ways of seeing, and ways of acting in the world and describing the world. And through those alternative modes, we can sometimes access new possibilities for change and for progress. 
Yeah, something that stands out to me about this is typically it feels like any conversation around protecting the environment, uh, conserving endangered species or climate resilience, these all seem to happen in the realm of science. But literature and poetry have a lot to contribute to the discussion. It feels significant that this book does include art and poetry and essays. Does that say something to you about how we are approaching solutions to climate change? Absolutely. I think. the Western world did a really good job for several centuries of separating the human from anything else. Um, the this kind of idea that we could objectively look at the world uh, as something separate and outside ourselves, which is absolutely not true. We are also deeply interconnected, and so art, poetry uh, allows this collapsing again, where much of contemporary environmental writing is directly engaged with science and directly engaged with um, different exigencies of, of the human world and the human condition within the context of the splendor and beauty and horror of the greater than human world. And poetry has long been a permeable space for people to be able to write with a scientific observation and an artistic observation. Um, So I just love being able to, to operate in that mode where I can swivel back and forth between those two parts of my mind. And in that swivel or, or that broadening, um, I'm able to see possibilities that I might not be able to see if I just were staying on a singular track. You've described the book as a radical reimagining of how we can approach climate change. I'm wondering what that reimagining looks like. Well, one of the things that's so exciting about this book is it looks like a lot of different things. And so that's part of what feels radical to me in this book is how inclusive and broad through generations, through ethnicities and races, um, regions, locations, so many different kinds of women are speaking so many different ways. We are speaking with poet and writer and university professor at Colorado State University, Camille Dungy. The poem that's included uh, in All We Can Save is called Characteristics of Life. I'd love for you to read an excerpt. I would be happy to read. I'll read about the first half of the poem. Characteristics of Life. A fifth of animals without backbones could be at risk of extinction, say scientists. BBC Nature News. Ask me if I speak for the snail, and I will tell you, I speak for the snail. I speak of underneathedness and the welcome of mosses, of life that springs up, little lives that pull back and wait for a moment. I speak for the damselfly, water skeet, mollusk, the caterpillar, the beetle, the spider, the ant. I speak from the time before spinelessness was frowned upon. Ask me if I speak for the moon jelly. I will tell you one thing today and another tomorrow, and I will be as consistent as anything alive on this earth. Thank you. That just feels so magical. And it's a poem about invertebrates, right? Talk about what inspired this piece, why it was included in the anthology. 
Well, that's a really horrifying data point. <laughs> a fifth of all invertebrates are at risk at risk of extinction in in a relatively near future. And so frequently, when I run across these data points, it's just it, it it's just overwhelming. I I don't know what to do with with that knowledge. And this to me is one of the other things that's beneficial about art, that art gives us another another way of holding facts and truth. And so just thinking about you know, what is an invertebrate anyway, and, and what do they look like, and um, just kind of cataloging who, who these creatures are. Um, and that allowed me space to to mourn and to rage um that's different than I might be able to do if I were just sitting here talking to you about that uh little factum that I picked up or that I might be able to again pick up from a scientific paper or the newspaper or something that poetry just allows space to to give life to life I love that it is sparked by a data point and by a term, I mean, invertebrate, if I say that to myself, it just sounds very clinical. You really bring to mind images of these living creatures that are beautiful. Um, and I think it gives more meaning to, you know, them being threatened. Right. I think so frequently the ways that we think about the world, they're, they're huge topics. They're, they're almost, uh, you know, abstract. They don't like you're saying with the word invertebrate, it's like, what is, what, what is that? What does that mean anyway? But when you see a damselfly or a mollusk, or I describe a nautilus later in the poem, um, that then this life becomes becomes real um, and connected with us in a way that I think can build urgency and import and uh, again, drive action. Well, all we can save is on the nightstands of Boulder residents, you know, all over the city. What do you hope they take away from the book and from your work too? What, what types of discussions do you hope it might spark? I think the word hope that you're using is is one of the most important this we've been having this conversation for a very long time um and so i hope that this isn't news uh at this point but i do hope that sometimes there's this like well, what like what do we do what can we do and how um that that the writers in All We Can Save present a lot of different options. And in those moments where we feel really worn down, um, exhausted to be able to open the pages and turn to, to new, um, new instruction and new ideas and like reinvigoration of our energy. I think that feeling not alone um, and feeling that there are communities of people having these conversations can be really necessary to building resilience as we work towards resistance. This is a slightly different topic, but you recently won the Academy of American Poets Fellowship. Um, that seems like a big deal. To me, I understand for you it's a recognition of, of how far the field of poetry has come in making space for environmentally engaged Black writers. Can you tell me a bit about the evolution of that space and what is unique about the perspective that you bring as a Black woman in environmental writing? I think that 
the expansion of who is allowed um, to speak about what matters to them in the world. Every time we expand those circles, we get better as a culture as a whole. We get more opportunity for new beauty um, and, and new solutions and new challenges for ourselves and our ways of being stuck in a certain path that may or may not be actually effective. And so when I first started writing, um, there really, there really wasn't space for, um, African-American environmental writers. It's not that they were not doing the work. Um, These African-American environmental writers were doing the work. There just wasn't, um, space made in the kind of larger, um, like dominant cultural conversation. And that has changed over the course of my career, which has been really exciting. Camille Dungy is a poet, a writer, and Colorado State University professor. Her poem, Characteristics of Life, was included in All We Can Save, an anthology of climate movement writings by women, which was this year's selection for the One Book, One Boulder reading event. Camille, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. One Book, One Boulder wraps up on Thursday evening with a live virtual author talk with the book's editors Ayanna Johnson and Katherine Wilkinson. You can learn more about that event at the Boulder Library website. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we learn how a local university is preparing future teachers to recognize and address the effects of trauma in students. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.